I'm Jonathan Mosin and this is Mosin at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. On the show this week, what constitutes literacy in a blindness context? Listeners have sent in some handy travel tips and Gary O'Donoghue reviews the Zoom F3 digital field recorder. Mosin at Large Podcast More responses coming in inspired by episode 191 and our interview with NFB President Mark Riccobono, starting off with this one from Everett Bacon, who says, Hi Jonathan, I wanted to express some thoughts to you regarding your most recent podcast and your interview with Mark Riccobono. First of all, I appreciate your willingness to interview Mark, and I appreciate the time you put into crafting your topics and questions. I will admit that this is the first time I have ever listened to your podcast. I would also state that I am the current elected secretary of the National Board of Directors, and I am an affiliate president for Utah. Mark is my president, and I am also proud to call him my friend. Your approach to the interview struck me as somewhat adversarial. I felt that many of your questions came from the perspectives of detractors and naysayers of the NFB and our way we manage our organization. I expected some questions along this line, but I did not expect for the majority of the interview to be this way, and I was also disappointed in the lack of acknowledgement or even appreciation of the way Mark attempted to answer your questions. Mark is definitely capable of speaking for himself and speaking for the organization as a whole. I feel that in your research for this interview, You really attempted to bring about a gotcha moment, and I don't feel you were always fair and impartial to Mark and the NFB. I realize that the NFB does not lack for controversy amongst the blind community, but as Mark so eloquently stated, we do not attempt to defend ourselves and our organization by feeding the trolls. I think your attempt to get at whatever truths you wanted to bring about ended up feeding those trolls. These are my opinions, and I will stand by them. I do again thank you for the way you ended the interview by focusing on the most recent presidential report and allowing Mark to elaborate on some of our important efforts. I thank you for your time in reading this. Well, thank you for writing in, Everett. I appreciate your email. On to the next email now, and in episode 191, we discussed the importance of Braille and NFB's approach towards Braille, and we've got a follow-up email from last week's discussion with Joe, who says, thank you for giving so much time last week to my emails concerning your interview with Mark Riccobono. I respectfully take issue with your definition of literacy of a visually impaired person as the idea of one taking in the information directly without an intermediary, like a reader or talking computer. When you are reading Braille, you are putting your finger on dots that were created by a computer that translates the text or print file into Braille and sends it to a Braille printer or Braille display. These devices that make these translations are no less an intermediary than a talking computer or person reading aloud. Is it really worth splitting hairs here? Rather than using a pejorative like illiterate to describe a person who doesn't read Braille, can't we accept the fact that Braille doesn't work for everyone? A few years ago, I attended a cocktail party where the featured guest was the late Henry Grunwald, who spent much of his career as the managing editor of Time magazine. 
At the event then, Mr. Grunwald was in his late 70s, and he talked about a book he had just written and his recent affliction with macular degeneration. He said that the first half of the book was written out by him, but because of the macular degeneration, he dictated the second half. Jonathan, I ask you, did Mr. Grunwald suddenly become illiterate when he composed the second half of his book? I think it would be offensive and disgraceful to say that Mr. Grunwald, who spent his life writing, died an illiterate man because he could not read and write Braille. Every year, thousands of elderly people lose their ability to read due to macular degeneration or diabetes. These people are having a hard enough time adjusting to their new circumstances. Why make them feel even more isolated than they already do by calling them illiterate? I suggest that we remove the word illiterate from our vocabulary and substitute it with non-Braille user, just as we should stop using the word blind for ignorant. Thanks for writing in again, Joe. And this is exactly what I predicted last week when I said it's hard to have this conversation without offending people because some people choose to interpret the word illiterate as a pejorative, whereas I don't. I just simply use it as a fact. That doesn't mean I think any less of anybody who doesn't read or write. There can be many reasons why this has come about, and age-related vision loss is probably the most common, but not always. Sometimes it's because kids in our schools were not given access to literacy at a critical time because they had sufficient sight, even when the prognosis was that their sight will deteriorate. And that's the only reason why I'm continuing with this discussion, because if we don't confront the literacy crisis and call it what it is, we risk harming the next generation of blind people. This argument that somehow talking computers and talking books are sufficient won the day for a while, and there was a deterioration in the literacy of blind children over a period until blind people got their act together and said enough is enough. And the data are clear that 90% of Braille readers are employed. So the unemployment rate among Braille readers is much closer to the general unemployment rate of the population compared with the unemployment of the blind community as a whole. It comes up sometimes, but thankfully we don't hear the talking computers are making Braille obsolete argument as often as we once did. But when we did, I used to say this, too many blind people over the generations have been victims of a ghastly social experiment. We have been deemed so unworthy that our education has not been resourced properly. Now, we've talked a lot about the social consequences of attending schools for the blind and schools for the blind are largely out of fashion. But what has happened is that as kids have started to go to the mainstream, there hasn't been the necessary commensurate increase in resourcing of the literacy of blind children. The reason why I call this a social experiment is I say this to policymakers with whom I have this discussion. If it's okay for blind kids not to be taught to read, to have machines that read to them or other people that read to them, why isn't it okay for sighted kids to be given the same treatment? Why don't we just stop teaching sighted kids to read altogether and get them to have their iPads speak to them and they can dictate their answers into their iPad and have them read them back? Let's give everybody an iPad and then we don't have to teach literacy at all. And of course, understandably, people throw up their hands in horror as they should. 
Literacy is the key to one of the most important doors that there is, and I will not shy away from constantly repeating that blind children are worthy. If it's deemed essential for sighted children to be in front of literate teachers in the form of literacy that works for sighted people, then blind people should always be in front of teachers who are literate in terms of blindness, and that is Braille. Anything less is making a determination that blind children are second-class children, and there's no way I am accepting that. Braille is not a language. It's a way of making language accessible. It doesn't matter whether the language is coming on a Braille embosser or a print printer or a Braille display or a print monitor. The fact is that when it appears in whatever form that it does, a human is decoding that information and turning it into language. For example, if I was not literate in Braille, given that I am blind and print illiterate, how would I be dealing with your email right now? Probably the only way I could do it would be to use text-to-speech and play the message, and you'd hear the text-to-speech engine reading it rather than me. Am I reading it? No, absolutely not. That would completely change the whole nature of this podcast. A text-to-speech engine is not going to have the level of inflection or speed up when that's warranted, slow down when that's warranted, convey the emotion of what's being read. Over the last few weeks, we have talked about, among other things, abuse at schools for the blind, and some people have written in with their experiences. I have read them. Do you think that it would sound the same, that it would be nearly as impactful if the only choice I had were to let a text-to-speech engine rip and read that email? Absolutely not. It wouldn't be as good. Sometimes when I'm reading an email, I may pause and insert my own comments, sometimes to help the correspondent, sometimes to be a little bit frivolous and fun, for any number of reasons. I wouldn't do that if I had a text-to-speech engine reading the thing. It wouldn't be as easy. It wouldn't flow the way it flows now. So me not being able to read would completely change the nature of this podcast for the worse. Earlier this week, I delivered a speech of about 15 or 20 minutes in front of a large gathering of politicians and other people, and I read that from Braille. If I couldn't read it myself, I would have someone else read it to me, or the politicians would sit there and have a computer read it to them. Is that the same? Absolutely, it is not. That doesn't mean that there aren't other ways to get the job done, of course, that may well work for the individual. For example, I interviewed a newsreader in Australia on FScast when I was hosting that, and the way that she worked was that she would hear eloquence speaking at just the right speed in her headphones when she was reciting a news bulletin, and she would then repeat that back into the microphone. And so as far as the audience were concerned, all they heard was somebody reciting the news. Is somebody reading the news in that situation? I don't think they are, but that doesn't detract from the fact that sighted people are getting the news and they're getting the news fluently and she's really competently doing it. So I absolutely accept that. And there are legitimate reasons why some people cannot learn Braille. It could be a learning disability. It could be that it just does not compute. It doesn't make them any less intelligent. But where possible, surely it is preferable for anybody who is able to read. What about the ability to identify various items quickly 
or to read labels on doors at hotels and other places, or the big kicker, of course, reading a bedtime story to one's children. Would it be the same for those children if a computer read that story to them? No, it would not. The computer wouldn't be able to put on the funny voices for all the different characters. The computer wouldn't put that unique inflection that only dad does. I think the issue here is that you may be in your own mind drawing a synonym between illiteracy and lack of intelligence. And I don't for a moment draw that similarity at all. You talked about Henry Grunwald, for example, and was he illiterate? When he put the second half of his book together because he dictated it and couldn't read it back himself, humankind has a long history of oral traditions and stories, myths and legends, family histories. They've been passed from generation to generation orally. And sometimes these things change with the passage of time and the telling of tales. Super intelligent, yes, but illiterate, yes. So if you are dictating to someone and you don't have the means of writing down what you've written and reading it back, yes, that's what literacy means. You can have a productive life without being able to read and write. Many people have, as you said in last week's message. But it does us no favor to sugarcoat it just because we're fearful of offending people by telling the truth. If you're literate, you can write something down and read back yourself what it is that you have written. And I don't accept the comparison between ableist language using blind to mean ignorant, stupid, and this question, because we're not changing the definition of the word here. We're sticking to the literal definition of the word literacy. I think a more fitting parallel would be people who say, I'm not blind, because they view blind as a pejorative, just as you're viewing illiterate as a pejorative. And so they might say, I'm not blind, I just don't see, or I just don't see so well. Another email on this subject, Marissa writes in and says, Hi, Jonathan, I wanted to echo what a listener mentioned about Braille. I learned some Braille. I can read very slowly, grade one Braille. I can write grade one Braille as well. I myself have been a large print user all my life and am legally blind. I have nothing against Braille. However, what I do feel a little bit annoyed by is that not everybody is able to learn Braille. I don't agree with the NFB saying you're illiterate if you don't know Braille. That puts people at a disadvantage. I read large print, and if I must, regular print, but using magnification aids. I also listen to articles, etc., using a screen reader. I do not count that as reading. I simply count it as comprehending what is being read to me. However, I am capable of reading. It may not be Braille, but I'm not illiterate. I write with a pen and the computer. Not illiterate there either. Thanks, Marissa. Well, in a way, we're agreeing because you are talking about reading print and that you have sufficient vision to make that work for you. I don't think the NFB has ever said you're illiterate if you don't know Braille. They're saying if you don't have the means to read and write independently, then that is illiteracy. But in your case, you seem to be making it work with print. So no arguments there. You also have said what I've been saying too, which is that if the screen reader is reading to you, that's not you reading. That's the computer reading to you. Hello, Jonathan. This is Tim from North Carolina. 
I was intrigued by your definition of reading, and I would tend to agree with it. And so that would um, mean that if you're listening to a recording, you're actually listening to somebody reading to you, as, as you've said. And if you're reading print and reading Braille, then you are actually reading. But it got me to thinking, is there something you can hear that could fit in that definition of reading? So I'm wondering what you think about Morse code. If somebody sent you uh, a document in Morse code, if you knew the code, you're actually decoding the letters. So is not that a way of reading by listening because you're decoding the letters and putting them into language? That's a really good question, Tim, and it's something I hadn't thought about before, but sitting here cogitating on it, in my view, I would agree with that too. Yeah, because your brain is doing the decoding. It's not that you are being read to. It's that you're receiving data. Whether that data be squiggles, as I said last week, before your eyes, or dots under your fingers, or yes, dots and dashes in your ears, your brain is the one that's actually encoding that and turning it into language. You also make me think that the Opticon deserves an honorable mention. Many people these days might take a picture of some printed text and read that on their Braille display. And sometimes at a pinch, if I'm at a meeting and they haven't provided accessible formats, my inclination is to say no accessible formats, no meeting with me. But sometimes you've got to be a bit pragmatic. And so sometimes I will take a picture of a document with my phone and I'll read it on my Braille display while the meeting is taking place. But of course, in days of yore, there was a way for blind people to read print, and that was the Opticon. And those who got good at the Opticon, and I was a child when the Opticon was big, and I never particularly did get good at it, really protect them. I know of several people who hoard Opticons and Opticon parts, because if the Opticons ever died and they couldn't get them working again, it would represent a significant deterioration of their quality of life. Now, there may be many people listening to this podcast who have never heard of an Opticon, so I'll try and describe it. It was a product that was released by Telesensory, and it came out in the 1970s. And the way it would work is that you'd have a camera that was cabled to this device. On that device, kind of a boxy thing, was a tactile array. You would rest a fingertip on the tactile array, and when you ran your camera over text it would appear in print on that tactile array. So you would have to be print literate. And it occurs to me that this could bring literacy back for a lot of people that Joe was talking about earlier, people who've gone blind later in life. There's so much going on, various age-related disabilities. They may not necessarily want to learn Braille. That's a choice that they have the right to make because at their stage of life, they may make a determination for them personally, which is absolutely their right, that the benefits just don't outweigh the considerable time it might take to come up to speed. But if there were a machine produced in the 2020s that allowed people to read printed material on a tactile array, it seems to me that that could restore literacy to a lot of people who are very print literate but can't see it anymore. It's curious to me that the Opticon has not been revived in some sort of more modern form. Hi, Mosin at large listeners. This is Kevin from Malaysia. I am a native blind person, meaning I'm blind since birth. I understand that you're not trying to lump all the reading experience here. We are especially focusing on the 
literacy for the uh, blind people and you are not also trying to judge any of other people's experience of reading things in many other ways we are not talking about personal experience we are not talking about what you gain or what you lose we are talking about a very very crucial point of uh, literacy i'm agreeing for the most part with you that uh, reading is about decoding the symbol and forming words in our brain by doing that and and i also learned a lot because after reading your email i i go to wikipedia which i understand that it is a utmost place to understand the world knowledge on reading and when we see how wikipedia defines reading they refers to collins oxford and merriam webster by saying that reading and i'm using the third reference which is um reproduce mentally or vocally uh, the written word or printed by following the symbols so this is very very inclusive indeed and they're using touch uh, as one of the uh, inclusive word here but let me just try to frame where we might have some more discussion uh, one is on the understanding that blindness is spectrum and literacy is also spectrum many blind people may intersect with other kind of impairments such as uh, neurodiversity intellectual disability and of course physical disability and literacy is a spectrum why i say that is because literacy is enabled by technology anthropologically technology just means something that make our effort less So for example in the early days of writing most of the literate which is very less only read they are considered literate because they read they do not know how to write and <laughs> considering my case of not knowing how to read my native first language which is which is tamil i use nvda e speak to read many blog posts of literary figures Uh, and i also read many scholarly works sometimes and commentaries and news from tamil language by using eSpeak i do not have the socio economic capability to afford braille display but i know how to read braille because i, I learn my braille reading in my primary school i can read braille in malay and english but then i can speak and read I, i i consider reading because sometimes when people send me messages in tamil i go to google translate and listens to it i may be excluded because i could not put symbols together so let's say if you come to me and you spell some tamil word i have a, a very hard time to put it together so i would like to understand better uh, on why then if this literacy is a spectrum if it is a spectrum and you agree with it if you not then you may state why but if you agree with it why can't we expand that i'm not sure whether we have because i know there is a journal of blind and visually impaired which is a very interesting journal that i just came across when understanding this topic better surprisingly from my perusal on google scholar there there are no not no studies or little studies on intercourse between literacy and different mo- uh, modalities or di- reading um, method 
of blind people or disabled people. I am hopeful that I am wrong because this is a crucial topic. We know Amanda Go have done something on compensatory sound. I hope uh, Jonathan can, if possible, share the link to the master's thesis if she she would like to share it to the public. We understand that the neuronal pathway that's uh, relating to um, sight, which is, um, th- there are many, but one of them which is always quoted is the pathway or the neural connection called V1 works interestingly in a same way when we read Braille. So what happened is that the reading part is not really the organ, which is hand or eyes, but the brain. So David Eagleman is a very interesting scientist that tries to apply this brain theory in multiple ways by using synesthetic understanding where people can hear colors or see sound. So this kind of thing, uh, there, there are many emerging technology on that. So why don't we bring in reading uh, into that? We know that language is far more ancient technology as compared to uh, Uh, alphabets or writing. So writing is pretty new. Uh, Even um, uh, language can be innate, but writing is a quiet skill for kids. Thank you very much for a great, thoughtful contribution, Kevin. I appreciate you taking the time to put it together. I do view this a bit differently. I don't think that literacy is a spectrum. I think that literacy is about being able to write something down and read back what you have written down personally and to read back, obviously, what other people have written down. But I also agree with you that there are technologies that are making information available to a much wider group of people, and I celebrate that. I mean, even if you don't know Braille, and you don't know print, and you don't have a means of reading something yourself, you can still use a screen reader or some other technology to go to a website and have the morning newspaper read to you by that technology. And that's absolutely fantastic. We know that information is power and there are all sorts of ways to unlock it. And sure, neuroplasticity is an amazing thing. There has been a bit of research that indicates that in people who've been blind for a long time, either since birth or childhood, the brain gets rewired and all the power that might have been used for your visual cortex gets rewired to do other things. But that doesn't change what the nature of literacy is. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you go into a meeting and you sit there and there are, say, five or six people around that meeting table conveying incredibly complex concepts to you. And you are just one of those people who can sit there. You may not be able to read it back or take notes even, but you can absorb this. You're one of these people who picks up stuff really quickly. And it may be that one of the things that has assisted you to get to that point is neuroplasticity, a rewiring of the visual cortex or whatever, so that you have more capacity to absorb information than you otherwise would were you not blind. Now, you may not be able to get up and read your own presentation in that meeting, but you may be able to convey these concepts in a way that leaves people awestruck with your ability to master such complex concepts so quickly and without any kind of reference to text. Now, are you reading? No, you're not. Are you functioning well in that environment? Absolutely. I'm not saying 
that if you are illiterate, you can't function in a really meaningful way. The same is true of people with neurodiversity, who for whatever reason can't read or write. They make great contributions to a workplace. Absolutely they do. But for the sake of our children, I think it's absolutely essential to say that if you have the capacity, if there is nothing preventing it, it is preferable to be literate than not. Let me draw another parallel outside the literacy debate that I think is relevant to try and illustrate to the point here. One of the big frustrations that many blind people face is you read a job ad and you think, wow, this job has got me written all over it. I can do this job. And then at the bottom, it says a driver's license is required. Now, you're not going to contact that employer and say, even though I'm blind, I can drive to work because you can't. But you might contact the employer and say, even though I'm blind, I'm so used to being blind and I have techniques adapted, I can get there on time every day using alternative methods. I might catch an Uber. I might have good access to public transport. I will get there. If there are appointments that I have to get to on this job, I will get there on time. I will have a roster of drivers. I will do what it takes. There are other ways of getting the job done. And that's what you're doing. If you're having someone read to you or you're having a machine read to you as well, you're not reading just as you're not driving, but you are using alternative techniques to absorb and process information. And by the way, when we get our self-driving cars, and I hope I live long enough to get mine, I won't consider me to be driving. The car is driving me. I am not doing what it takes to drive that vehicle. It is driving itself, just as a screen reader is reading to me, I am not reading when I use my text-to-speech engine. And indeed, this is the point that NFB made when they did their blind driver challenge. They developed systems which genuinely allows a blind person to know what's going on around them through tactile feedback, so they are in control of the vehicle. And this is a very similar concept to the difference between you being in control of what you are reading, your brain doing that work, and a machine or another human reading to you. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is... 86460-MOSIN. That's 86460-667-36. G'day, Jonathan and listeners. Scott Rutkowski from Sydney, Australia here. I just wanted to make some comments on the noise-cancelling headphones that uh, was brought up in the last podcast. I own the Sony WH-1000XM4 headphones, and i got to say, I've owned these for a bit over a year and a few months. Now, I've had many noise-cancelling headphones in the past. Started back with the noise-cancelling Bose with the cable on the earphones. I forgot which ones they were. But they ran on one AAA battery. They were pretty cool. I think they were the same ones that Jonathan had, the Quiet Comfort 2s, I think. I can't remember if they were the ones or not. 
I've also got the Bose Quiet Comfort, the ones that came out before the 45s. They're not too bad, but I have to say I really like the Sony WH-1000XM4s that I've owned for a long time. They do have the voice guidance when you pair them. They've also got the low battery indicator when you get down to 20% and 10%, and then they tell you to charge me. And they've also got the prompts for when you're in a quiet place and you want to tell it to measure the noise around you so it can optimize the noise-canceling experience to your ears. And the Sony app has to be the most accessible app along with the Bose app, the Bose uh, Connect app that I've ever used. Everything just works and the 30 hours battery life is unbelievable. Put it this way, when I actually use the XM4s on the treadmill, it blocks out every single thing around you. You don't hear the motor of the treadmill or any other sound nearby and nobody can get your attention. It's actually very, very cool. It puts you into a world of your own. And I really love the plush padding. I've actually looked at the XM5s, very similar design. They're quite pricey. They're about, at the moment here in Australia, they're $548. But hopefully they'll have a special on those very shortly. We only got those here at the end of June this year. So they'll have a cheaper price possibly toward the end of the year. The other thing that's nice about the XM5s, even though they don't fold down, I love the case with its magnetic flap where you can store the accessories that come with the headphones. Very cool. So definitely the XM5s or the XM4s are nice. The XM5s do come with eight microphones in total. So each headphone or ear cup comes with uh, four microphones and I actually listened to a YouTube video of a call test. You wouldn't even know that the person was wearing Bluetooth headphones. So definitely I would take a look at those. They're cheaper in the United States. I've forgotten the price off the top of my head. I like the fact when you turn them on, it says power on, you hear a beep, then it says Bluetooth connected, so you know that they're actually connected with your device. You can connect up to two devices to the headphones at the same time. You can't use them together, but you can switch from one to the other seamlessly. That actually has to be turned on in the settings within the Sony Headphones Connect app, and the firmware updates are totally accessible through the app. So if you're looking for some really nice noise-canceling headphones, I would seriously consider the Sony range. Hi, Jonathan and Mosin at Largers. This is Gina Harper from California. And I sound awful because I was just at the NFB convention, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And a number of my friends and I got covid I have been feeling 
really badly. Thankfully, I was able to get the antiviral medicine. The issue was that my home test showed negative three times. And then my daughter, who has a lot of wisdom, said, Mom, go to the doctor and get a PCR test. So I did that, and that revealed that I was positive. So I'm mostly laying low. I wanted to send in this recording about travel to add to the conversation, and I didn't want to miss the gal who was going to Mexico, her travel window. Mike and I have a lot of ticks and trips that I plan to share. First thing is we never check our luggage except for two exceptions. One is when we go skiing because we have to check our boots and our skis. So just might as well check everything. The other is when we go to Hawaii, which is an annual event, we bring food and spices and things like that. So we don't have to buy everything from scratch. And we do have to check those. So we check everything. The reason we don't check our bags is because we don't want to lose track of them. In each piece of luggage, including computer bag and purse, we either have an air tag or a tile. I prefer the tiles. They're much louder, but just depending on what we have, we keep those things in our luggage. Mike is a real stickler for following the rules as regards liquids, and I am not a real stickler. In the U.S., this has never come back to bite me. An example would be if I have face moisturizer in a five-ounce bottle, but I have used half of it, I would put it in my bathroom pouch, and I have never been asked to throw anything away in the U.S. In the U.K., however, the TSA guy in the U.K. and I did not have a good interaction. He made me throw away a bunch of things, which made me very sad. And he did actually ask me if I thought I was special. And I did say, yes, I'm sure that didn't help matters <laughs> anyway. I have a certain methodology. I have two bathroom type bags. One is a plastic, pretty sealed safe bag with a zipper. So I put any liquids in there. And then I have a mesh bag that I put solids like a razor, tweezers, deodorant, just to keep things organized, but nothing in there can spill. So that has served me well. Nothing has ever spilled, but I just do it that way to be safe. As far as packing, some of my tricks and tips are I mostly bring hiking shoes in addition to other shoes. So I shove socks and underwear and different things in the hiking boots because that's just wasted space. They don't collapse. You can't press them down. So you might as well fill them with items. I also bring hiking sticks that are collapsible and they break into two pieces so I can go hiking and they do fit in my travel size luggage and I'm always grateful to have those. Another technique that I do is I have the suitcase open and say I have a long sleeve shirt. I open the long sleeve shirt in my suitcase with the arms going out of the edges just as I'm packing it. So I'm acting as though it's a human body in the suitcase. Then I keep piling things in there. And then at the end, I take the arms that are dangling out of the suitcase and I wrap them around the top. This technique has really helped when it comes to do things get wrinkled and things fit a lot better that way. And then every once in a while as I'm packing, I check for any little empty spaces and I do add little things in there like headphones or different things that I want to put wherever there's a nook and cranny that isn't being used. That's how we manage to get everything in these suitcases 
and to have the right size suitcases. The other thing is I finally come to a wonderful outfit that I use for traveling that I want to share. This is more of a woman tip. I experienced that in the airports, if it's hot outside, the airport is freezing. If it's freezing outside, I'm sweating to death in the airport. So I have really cute exercise leggings that I wear on my legs. And I have a really cute exercise dress that looks like a sleeveless dress down to my knees, very fashionable, intended for exercise, but looks really cute. And then I take a long sleeve sweatshirt and I tie it around my waist so I don't have to have it in my suitcase or anywhere else. And that's because there are times when the airplane is really cold or the airport is really cold. So if it's really cold, I have that sweatshirt around my waist. If it's hot, I have a sleeveless dress on. That has proven to be great and I'm always very comfortable. I do carry a fanny pack, but it's not a traditional fanny pack. It's really made for running because I like things flexible, not hard, not like a leather fanny pack. And I buckle it around my waist. It has a zipper and I put my phone in it, my milestone, which is a recorder I use, my AirPods, a mask if I need one, and lip gloss, very important on the lip gloss. So what I like about that fanny pack is that I always have easy access to my stuff and I don't have to have a bag that I have to have easy access to on the airplane. And the other thing is Mike and I do each have a technology bag that goes in our computer bag or our suitcase and a smaller pouch that we grab technology like chargers and cords that we need specifically on the airplane so it's not a very big bag. Another thing that Mike and I have is we have these neoprene handle grips and they're Velcro and you wrap them around your handle. And the unique thing is that they come in all different colors. So we have bright orange or bright pink. The benefit of this is when we put our luggage or computer bag overhead and when it's time to deplane, if there's other people in the way or people are handing each other different bags then we can identify the bag super easily by ours is the dark blue computer bag with the neoprene handle that is bright orange. So it's a wonderful identifier. We can also feel it really well when we're feeling different bags because so many of the bags feel the same. It's just a good identifier. Hope all this helps. Take care. Have fun and safe travels. Hello, this is Gary O'Donoghue, and this is a review and demonstration of the Zoom F3 two-channel 32-bit floating-point field recorder from a blindness perspective. Oh yes, cue the cheesy music. Okay. So the Zoom F3 field recorder, uh, 32-bit floating point field recorder, just been released uh, this year by Zoom. Uh, it's a very small form factor, and it's, as I say, 32-bit floating point. 
I'm not going to demonstrate the advantages of 32-bit floating point during this review. I did that uh, on an episode of Jonathan's Mosin at Large podcast, episode 35. So if you want to hear how you can bring up very quiet recordings uh, without raising the sound floor and uh, bring down over-modded clipped recordings and restore them, go back to episode 35 and you'll hear me demonstrate the advantage of 32-bit floating point. I will just say this, that I believe that 32-bit floating point is a, a real advantage uh, for us blind people uh, in not having to set accurate or particularly accurate gain levels. And indeed, on this recorder, there is no gain control. There is no record volume, believe it or not. You cannot set the gain. Uh, there is a complication to that, which I'll mention later on, but you cannot set the input gain. Uh, so having said that, I'm going to divide this into uh, three parts, I think. I'm going to give you a physical description of the recorder. I'm then going to spend a little bit of time just talking about the menu structure, uh, which I have mapped, uh, not because it's particularly accessible uh, using the unit itself, um, but it will be good, I think, for people to know where stuff is or have an idea of where stuff is if they need to use sighted help to, to do things. And there are a couple of things that, that we can do in the menu structure on the machine itself, such as put it into the mode where it's recognized as a drive when you plug it into your PC or as an audio interface. I'll show you how to get to those points in the menu with very few button presses. And then at the uh, third part of the, the review, I'm going to look at the app that comes along with the field recorder. This does require uh, an extra Bluetooth adapter that is not does not come with the unit. It's an extra $39, the BTA1 Bluetooth adapter from Zoom. It's the same adapter that plugs into the F6, if you have that already. Um, and that will allow you to drive some of the menus only some of the menus from an iOS or an Android app. There is an Android app uh, this time around. The F3, I bought it for $349 on Amazon. That's the most recent price I've seen. So without any more messing around, let's get on to part one and a physical description of the unit. Okay, so just before I start the physical description, I'm going to give you a brief description of my setup for recording this demo. I know some people are interested in those things. So I am recording this into Reaper on a laptop PC, an HP laptop. I've got the Vocaster 2 uh, from Focusrite Audio Interface plugged into that via USB-C, obviously. I have got a Electrovoice RE27 dynamic broadcast microphone plugged into channel 1. That's what I'm speaking to you on now. Um, I have got a cable coming out of the headphone jack of the F3, and that's going to a, a, a male XLR jack on the other end, which is going into channel two of the Focusrite. Um, not because I'm going to play you anything, but I want you to be able to hear some bleeps and things that are going to be quite useful that come out of the unit. And then I've got a, uh, a cable from my iPhone with the uh, adapter, the little dongle adapter, plugged into the audio auxiliary input on the Focusrite so that when I come to show you the app, I can um, you can hear that through uh, on the recording as well. So that's the setup as at the moment. Oh, and I've got a, another microphone plugged into the... Um, this is... I'm going to go over to this one. You can probably... Can't, maybe I'll be able to hear it. It's the um, 
the Shaw KSM8, that's plugged into the F3, so I can demonstrate uh, that as well at some point. Okay, so let's uh, get on to the physical description of the unit. Um, the first thing to say is that it is small. Uh, it sits in your hand quite comfortably. It's very sort of boxy in shape. Um, it is uh, almost square, I would say, um, although this is it is wider and and longer than it is tall off the desk. Uh, what it also has on the bottom side is two rails, I would call them, uh, on opposite sides of the unit. And if you imagine, um, they are they are the, the length of the unit itself, and they are made of metal, and they are quite close to the unit. And you could thread, and this is partly what they're intended for, you could thread a belt through them and hang this off your belt. Um, and mount it in other ways as well. But that is clearly one of the intentions of these metal rails. The dimensions are the units 3 inches by 3 inches by 1.9 inches. That's about 7.5 centimetres by about 4.8 centimetres, again by about 7.5 centimetres. Uh, its weight is 8.5 ounces, so just over half a pound, which is about 242 grams. Now, I'm going to talk about the unit um, from the perspective of laying it on the desk with the rails to the left and the right, uh, pointing vertically away from me and towards me. Um, and what you feel on the top of the unit is a small LED screen or LCD screen, whichever it is. <clears throat> and so that will, that's what I'm going to call the top of the unit. So there's then going to be a left-hand side, a right-hand side, a front side, which is facing towards me, and a back side, which is facing away from me. So I'm going to start on the top of the unit. And apart from the LED screen, all that's on the top of the unit are four very small buttons underneath the screen. Uh, they are very close together. Uh, they are, as I say, very small. And if you have dexterity issues, this may be an issue for you. I have to take a lot of care when I'm trying to press one of the middle ones or as opposed to one of the end ones, which are pretty straightforward. But these buttons do various things uh, in in terms of navigating the menus if you're if you're doing that on the unit rather than through the app. And they also do various things in terms of changing the settings for each input channel, which is very tricky accessibly uh, on the unit, I'm afraid, in an accessible way, because uh, there seems to be a timing issue. You have to do certain things in a certain length of time for it to happen. Um, but I'll get into that a bit more later on. On the front of the unit, so the bit facing towards me as it's on the desk, uh, going from the left, there is a 3.5 millimeter line-out uh, line jack. Um, that is... Um, Obviously, allows you to, to play the output into a camera or into a mixer or something like that. It has a, a limiter on that line-out jack, which can be set in the menus, uh, although not through the app, sadly. Then there is a 3.5-millimeter headphone out jack, which is what I've got a cable plugged in at, to at the moment going to the vocaster. And then to the right of that is a rocker switch, which is the headphone volume. And it's split in two. You can feel two sides of this rocker. And the bit of the rocker towards the, the headphone jack itself is the volume down. And the bit away from it is the volume up. 
Now, I'm going round the corner of the machine, and the, the corners sort of stick out slightly. I don't know if, if you know what I mean by a flying buttress on a building where the corners are sort of elongated outwards slightly. This has that sort of design. It's like they have little towers at each corner. So I'm going round um, the unit now onto the right-hand side, uh, and the first thing you come to towards the top of the unit um, on the right-hand side is the Bluetooth adapter uh, socket now this comes with a, a rubber stopper in it um, which is not attached to the unit you get your fingernail under it and pull it out and it comes out I've already lost it so goodness knows so that's not very good design but that's uh, that's where you put the bluetooth adapter next going further to the right of that so uh, towards the, the back of the machine as I've got it on the desk in front of me is a indented square button which is the power button about two to three seconds held in to switch on and off. When you're switching it on, you can hear a little sort of click in your headphones that tells you it's coming on if you've got headphones plugged in. And of course, if your channels are armed and you have a microphone plugged in, then you will hear the mic or mics come live in your cans as another indication that you've turned it on properly. I'm now going to the back side of the unit, and this is where the two XLR uh, sockets are uh, the one um, again from from my perspective with the unit on the desk and these XLR facing them away from me the one on the left uh, is channel one and the one on the right is channel two uh, so as you as you would expect and they're locking XLRs with the buttons that you know about um, and then we're going to come around to the left hand side of the unit and on the left hand side the first thing you come to is a USB-C uh, port and that's for obviously data transfer to a PC and you can also power the unit through that USB-C port uh, you do not get a power supply with the uh, F3 in the box uh, but I imagine quite a lot of standard USB-C power supplies would work you don't want to give it too much current I don't think um, and also power banks can power it. I've done that. I've powered it from a power bank. That works. Next on that left-hand side, coming towards myself, coming back towards the front of the machine, uh, is a, a little door with a sort of a line, uh, a bold sort of uh, tactile line on the top of it, which is the SD micro SD slot. Um, it's one of those that pulls downwards. Uh, I'm not going to take it out because the unit is on. And you press the card. When the card's in there, you press the card in slightly and it springs. It's on a spring-loaded thing to pull it out. And again, uh, it go only goes in one way. Um, these micro SD cards are very, very tiny. So that may be an issue for some people, quite fiddly. But, um, but they do take, they say, up to one terabit, believe it or not. I'm not sure why you would put one in that large because i think i've got a 128 gig one in here and it's giving me something like potentially 90 hours recording depending on whether you're doing mono stereo etc so whether you want to pay all that money for a terabit who knows um so that's that now on the on the this is quite difficult to describe on the uh, above where that usb-c and micro sdc micro uh uh, SD card slot is on a sort of edge above it 
are three other buttons. Now, these are sort of at 45 degrees to that side and 45 degrees to the top. So they're on a sort of sloping edge um, between the top of the unit and the left-hand side of the unit. And again, they're reasonably small buttons, although one of them is larger. And going from furthermost away from me, so from towards the back of the machine, the first one is a play button. The second one down is a stop button. And the third longer button is a menu button. So play, stop and menu on that edge. Again, quite small. And then on the underside of the unit is a battery door, as you'd expect, and a mounting thread if you wanted to put it on a um, a boom pole or a, a camera or anything like that. Standard thread mount. It looks to me like a quarter inch, could be three-eighths, I'm not sure. Um, but it's one of those standard screw threads. Uh, that is essentially the description of it. In terms of the power, it takes two AA batteries. Um, I've seen some claims from Zoom that it can record up to eight hours. I think there's quite a lot of scepticism around that it could actually do that much, to be honest. Um, uh, it can also take, obviously, uh, NIMH rechargeable batteries, which is what I've got in it at the moment, or lithium. You can tell it uh, in the menus which kind of batteries you're using. If you have a, a USB power supply plugged in, which I do at the moment, um, that takes precedent over the AA batteries, uh, and they will they will kick in if that USB-C um, power supply is taken away. One downside of the, and this is preempting my discussion of the app, one downside of this unit is that while it shows you on in the app itself uh, what kind of batteries you're using or what kind of batteries it's set to, um, nickel metal hydride or alkaline it doesn't tell you how much you've lost or how much is left on the batteries unlike the f6 which doesn't actually give you a percentage but gives you a sort of voltage which gives you does give you an idea of how much is left so that's a a bit of a, a downside having said that there is an audible warning for low battery on this machine um and that is four bleeps in your headphones. So when batteries are low, it will bleep four times in your headphones. I don't know if that keeps repeating. I imagine it does. I've heard it once, uh, but I haven't tested it further than that. But four bleeps is a battery low signal. And while we're on this, the topic of beeps, um, this does beep when you put it into record, which I'm going to demonstrate to you now. If you listen carefully, I'm going to... The slide the one control I've forgotten to describe to you, which is the record control, of course, which is uh, rather silly. So on the opposite side of the screen to where we talked about those three buttons that are on the, the, the sort of 45 degree angle side, there is one more button, which is the record button. It's a one of those classic slider switches that you get on many digital recorders. So it has a lock position towards me. If I pull it towards me, that's a lock position. The middle position is is neutral. And if I slide it away, if I unmute that channel, it would help, I think. Let me unmute that channel. Yes, I'm unmuting that channel. You heard that double beep. That was me stopping recording. Now I'm going to press, I'm going to slide the switch up again. That beep tells me it started recording. Slide it up again, stopped recording. Sorry, this other mic has now come live. I've unmuted that channel. So one beep for starting recording, two beeps for stopping recording. 
and then you will get those four beeps in your headphones. I'm just going to mute this channel again because we're recording on two mics here, which is a bit... Um, uh, four beeps for the battery. You will also get a three-beep sound, which is very, very useful, and that occurs if you don't have a live channel, if, it, if both your channels are switched off and you're in mono or stereo, but the channels are switched off, un, not unarmed, in the, to use the technical phrase, you'll get a three-beep saying, well, you know, you're not recording anything. You'll also get a three-beep if your SD card is absent, and you'll get an, an S, a three-beep if the SD card is, is a problem with it. So there's actually some very useful uh, audio cues here, one for recording, two for stopping recording, three for there's a problem, and four for low battery. And the volume of those beeps can be changed in the output menu. Uh, head, it's, it's called headphone alert volume, um, and you can change that from very, very loud in your headphones to very quiet. Um, not accessibly, particularly, um, because that's not available in the app. So that is basically the, the description uh, of the unit. It is very tiny. Um, it is very, very portable. Um, it's made of metal, aluminium, and some plastic. It feels very robust uh, to me. I haven't dropped it. Um, and it really is something that could go in your bag without you being able to tell you've got it with you. Um, obviously, what it doesn't have is a 3.5 millimeter microphone input, so you can't uh, plug in your your favorite um, little mic. It does require proper XLR mics, and these these uh, XLRs are not they're not the combination uh, jacks where you get somewhere you can have XLR or a, a 6.3 jack going into the middle of it. These are just microphone XLRs. So there is that is the only interface. You cannot plug in, for example, those Zoom clip-on mics to this recorder. It doesn't take those, unlike uh, the F2 recorders or the, uh, the F1, sorry, recorders. Um, so it can't do that. So this is specifically designed really for, for field news gathering, um, interviewing. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a semi-professional piece of kit in that sense. And so it has none of those other interfaces i'm afraid um i think that does it for the physical description uh, of the unit what i'm going to do in a in a moment then is take you and give you a little tour of the menu structure just so you get an idea of what's available in that uh, and after that we'll get on to the app okay so i'm going to talk a little bit about the menu structure on the f3 um not because much of it is accessible. Some of it is accessible through the app, but not all of it. And that's a pattern we've seen on other digital recorders, including the F6. But I want you to know where things are if you have to get help. And when you start up the machine, you do have to get some help to set the language, the date and time, that kind of thing, particularly because date and time uh, is one of the ways of, of naming files. It, it automatically names files that way. So you probably want that set properly. Now, um, Physically, if you were doing this on the unit itself, uh, once the machine was on, you'd press the long button I referred to uh, on the left-hand side on that kind of 45-degree edge, the long button, the menu button. You would then use the middle two of the four buttons under the LCD screen to go up and down the menu. So and when I mean down, I mean you know going 
uh, vertically down. So the right hand of the middle two takes you down. The left hand of the middle two takes you up in the menus. That The rightmost of the four is the enter key to select an option or go into a menu. And the leftmost of the four is the back button to step up a, a level. And in most places, just pressing the menu will take you back to the home screen. Um, so as I say, if you're for some functions where, for example, putting it into um, the um, audio interface mode or some some such, where we can have such a limited number of steps that it is possible to use those menus, um, that is the way you would do it. So I'm just going to give you an overview of the menu. So if effectively there are six uh, top-level menus, which I'm going to describe. The first one is the Finder, which is what uh, Zoom calls the sort of directory of files. You go in there, uh, and this is actually on the app, uh, and look at your files and and select them, play them that way, delete them even. Um, the second level menu is recording. And again, that is one of the menus that is available on the on the app. The third level is output. Uh, that isn't available on the app. Uh, and inside that menu is a couple of other menus. The first one is, is H, says HP alert volume. That's what it says on the screen. And that's what I mentioned before about how loud are those uh, indicator tones in your headphones for recording, stopping recording, uh, problem with your card, or um, battery low. How, low? how loud do you want that to be? You go in there and you can change those. Um, and that, that again, it's using the buttons on, on the middle, but I, I wouldn't try and do that myself because I, I think I'd get confused. Um, the, if you want to know the, the mid buttons... Uh, the left one takes it quieter once you go into that menu, and the uh, the rightmost one makes it louder. And then enter would select that that particular level. Then uh, the second part of this output menu is called line out level. Again, that's for changing you know how loud the uh, output is from the line out jack. Um, the third level is line-out limiter, and that's switching the limiter on and off for the line-out jack. Uh, the fourth is line-out delay, uh, and that may be if you're trying to jam the signal to a, a camera or something like that. It's probably not something that we do particularly in audio, but that can be useful when you're using it in conjunction with a camera. The fourth top-level menu is US audio, uh, USB audio interface. And inside that men menu, the first option is PC Mac. Again, you just hit enter on that. And the second option is tablet. So if you want to use it as a, an audio interface, you'd go down to um, go to the fifth, uh, sorry, the fourth level um, menu. So you'd press the long key. You'd go down to once three presses downwards would get you to USB audio interface. Then you'd hit the rightmost of those four buttons to go into that. And the option you'd land on is PC Mac. Um, if you wanted to connect it to a PC or Mac, if you wanted to connect it to a tablet um, or an iPhone, I haven't tried it with the iPhone yet. I imagine it would work. Um, then you do down, go down once, which would be the rightmost of the two middle buttons, the right of the two middle, and then enter. Um, and then the fifth top-level option is USB file transfer. Um, so 
this is quite handy, I think, because um, if you imagine you can you can press the the menu button when you've got your machine on, you can go up twice, so the left hand one of the two middle buttons on the, of the four, go up once. That will be system, which is the the last entry on the the top level menu. Up again, and you'll get to uh, USB file transfer, and then you just hit enter on that, and it's in that mode ready to come up as a drive on your computer. So I think that's something we'd all use quite a lot. I mean, I do also take this, the micro SD card out and put it into an adapter and put that into the side of the PC. That's another way around, but this is a, a quick way of, of getting at your material. So into the menu, up twice with the left uh, hand one of the two middle buttons, hit enter, which is the rightmost of the four, and you'd be in USB file transfer mode. And as I said, the sixth um, level is system. Uh, this isn't on the app, annoyingly. There must be some technical restriction with this because, you know, uh, none of the, the apps seem to allow you to do this, the, the stuff with the system. Um, and the first option in there is language. The second one is date and time. The third one is LCD. That'll be about brightness, I imagine. The fourth one is power. That's where you can select uh, what kind of battery you're using, uh, which helps, if you could see it, reflect uh, a more accurate uh, remaining battery level on the screen. And also auto power off options uh, in there. Yes, so, so, so the first option is, is battery type, then it's auto power off. Then the next option is SD card. This is still within the system menu. And within SD card, the SD card format, there's quick test. You can test whether the, the card is compatible. There's full test, which takes longer. Um, um, and then there's a, in the system, there's a Bluetooth function. Um, and that allows you to um, use the Bluetooth dongle, not just for running the app, but it can also be used for time code, uh, uh, jamming time code with another piece of kit. Um, which, again, is for something for people who are using it with cameras. Uh, within the system menu is also a factory reset and a version number, so you know what what's, uh, firmware you're on. So that's really an overview uh, of the menus. Um, as I say, I will demonstrate this uh, shortly. The app only reflects some of those menus, but some important ones, um, and... It does allow us to switch uh, on and off the, the different inputs and select our recording format and uh, turn on and off phantom power and all that sort of thing. But I'll show you that in the next time. And just bear in mind, what we've not talked about at any stage here is a record level, button, knob, slider, anything. There is nothing to change the input gain of the microphones you plug into this device. Uh, there is a caveat to that, which I will go into at the end because it's complicated, uh, but it is, it is quite extraordinary having a, a recorder in your hand and not having a, a level knob to, to fiddle with and twiddle with. Okay, that's it uh, for this section. On to the app next. Okay, so now we're going to look at the F3 Control app. Uh, which is available in the iOS App Store. It's all also available on Android. 
though I don't have Android, so I haven't tried that, I'm afraid. Anyone with some observations on that would be, I'd be really interested to hear from them. As I said at the outset, if you're going to use the F3 Control app, you do need the extra BTA1 Bluetooth adapter, which is an additional $39. It's the same adapter as fits in the F6. And of course, you need to download the F3 Control app from the App Store. Now, there's some good news here, which is that it's very straightforward to connect the phone to the to the audio recorder, to the F3. Uh, more straightforward, actually, than it was on the F6. Um, because if you plug in the Bluetooth adapter and switch on the machine, it pops straight up to a Bluetooth menu. And with two button presses there, you can start the process of connecting to to your app very easily. So I think that's some progress, something they perhaps could learn for the firmware on the F6. So I've got the little Bluetooth adapter in my hand. Uh, as I said, there's a slot on the right-hand side of the machine, um, which is normally with a sort of rubber plug in it, which you get out with your fingernail. I've lost the rubber plug. So I'm going to – the machine is switched off, by the way. I'm going to push the uh, adapter into – it slots into place in, in one – only in one orientation. Um and I'm going to press the on switch, which is the button next to the Bluetooth adapter, the recessed square button. And I'm going to hold it for about three seconds. Now, pretty much straight away, according to the, the limited sighted help I've had with this, um, you come up to a menu. Uh, and what you want to do is you want to go use the four buttons under the LCD and you want to use the one below, sorry, the one to the right of the middle two, the right-hand one of the middle two to go down once. And then you want to press the enter button, which is the rightmost of the of the uh, four buttons. I'm going to press that. My phone's just locked itself, so I'm going to unlock my phone. Look, F3 control. Double tap to open. And I'm going to open the F3 Control app. F3 Control. Bluetooth devices. F3 underscore FTC 5 4 It's already popped up. It's found it in the list. Quite often it says searching for a while, empty list, but that's got it. So I'm going to double tap on that there, which is basically a serial number. Alert. Connecting. And you can hear it say alert connecting. This can take a little time. Connecting. Connecting. I'm swiping connecting. back and connecting. forth. Connecting. Still connecting. Connecting. Um, and the microphone has come live. You can probably hear um, that. That not what I'm tapping on there is the KSM8, which is plugged into the F3. I'm just going to mute that for a moment, so we can just listen to the iPhone. Connecting. 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 Still says connecting. connecting. X512. There we are. So, so we're into the app. Now, what I'm going to do to start with is I'm just going to take you to the top of the screen and swipe through every element on the front page of this app, just so you can hear what's there to begin with before we talk, ex explore it and, and talk about it. Zero hours, zero minutes, and zero seconds. That's the very top of the screen, and I'm just going to swipe right from now on. 91 hours, 10 minutes, and two seconds. Name. 140822 underscore 016 TR1. 48 kilohertz slash 32 bit float. One button. Zoom in. Button. X512. Gear. Button. Possibly. Zoom out. Button. Two. Button. Zoom in. Button. X64. Gear. Button. Possibly. Zoom out. Button. Line. Out. 
Roo off pad, button. FF off, button. Rec off, button. Stop off, button. Play off, button. Slate tone off, button. Menu, button. Mark, button. Mark, button. And that's the end of that main screen. So, uh, what we're going to do, <clears throat> I'm going to talk through very briefly this, this screen. We're going to come back to this screen. We're just going to talk through it very briefly as things stand. And then we're going to go into the menu, which is towards the bottom. So I'm going to go do a four-finger four single tap to go to the top of the screen. Zero hours, zero minutes, and zero seconds. The first element is how long has it been recording for? Um, so if I put the machine into record, you won't have heard it bleep because it's not that channel's not active. But if I go... Zero hours, zero minutes, and 10 seconds. You can hear that... 91, zero hours, zero minutes, and 13 seconds. Giving you the amount of lapsed time that I've been recording already, Okay. So, I've switched off the recording. I'm going to swipe right. 91 hours, 9 minutes, and 41 seconds. That's the amount of space I've got on the SD card, as is. And that is taking into account the current settings. Do I have both? Am I recording a stereo uh, file? Am I recording two mono files? Am I recording one mono file? That's what it's telling me is left, and given the whichever configuration I've got set. Next. Name. Name. This is the file name, the current file name. One four zero eight two two underscore zero one seven underscore tr one. And that's a date. That's the fourteenth. That's today, Sunday. Um, and that's the naming convention I mentioned to you uh, before. Now, format. Format. It says forty eight kilohertz slash thirty two bit float. Forty eight kilohertz thirty two bit float. It's always going to say thirty two bit float because this recorder does nothing else. Okay, it only records in 32-bit float. It doesn't record in MP3, doesn't record in FLAC or anything else, just in 32-bit float. You can change the kilohertz value uh, from 44.1 right up to 192 for those of you who do sound design, although even at those lower um, kilohertz rates, you know, with 32-bit float, you can boost boost volumes. But you can get that definition right up to 192. Um, the one thing that's missing from this, and I'm just going to unplug the power supply from the side of the F3 at the moment. I'm going to go back to the top. Zero hours. Neon H. Now, after the zero hours, zero minutes, and zero seconds recording time, it's got neon H. The kind of battery I'm using. When the AC was plugged in, it didn't say anything. Now that it's gone switched to battery, it tells me I've got I've got it set to NIMH, but it doesn't give me any voltage. It goes straight on to. 91 hours, 9 minutes, and 41 seconds. The amount of time relaxed, uh, remaining. I'm just going to plug the power back in. So that's quite boring because, uh, as I say, on the F6, you get a kind of a bit of an indication of where you are with the voltage levels. Uh, so I'm putting that back in. And I'm picking up my phone. I'm swiping right again. Zoom in. Button. Two. Zoom out. Gear. Zoom in. Sorry, Button. Zero from hours. The zero minutes. 91 hours. 9 minutes. Name. One. Four zero. Format. Format. Eight kilohertz. One. Button. Now. One button. What we're into now are the channels. Uh, and I'm going to come back to these, so bear with me. Zoom in. Button. Zoom in for channel one. X512. That's the amount of zo the f how, how much it's zoomed in. I'll explain that later. Here. Button. Possible. Here is Settings. a menu for the channel one. Zoom out. Button. Zoom out. Two. Button. Then two is the button for arming and unarming channel two. Zoom in. Button. Uh, the zoom ratio. X64. That's the zoom ratio itself. Here, button, possibly, menu, settings. Menu for channel, channel two. Zoom out, button. Zoom out. Line, out. Then there's a line out button. Roo off pad, button. Roo off pad, that is rewind, effectively. That's a transport control. FF off, button. Fast forward is another transport control. Rec off, button. You can start recording from the app itself. 
Stop off button. And you can stop, obviously. Play off button. And you can play. Slate tone off button. Slate tone. If I if I do a double tap and hold with one finger, mind your ears. That was very quiet. Let me um turn that up. Still very quiet. Uh, one more moment. Anyway, there's a slate tone, which I'm failing to demonstrate very effectively, um, which you can send out to to uh, line up levels on a on a separate machine. Menu button. And then there's a menu mark button and a mark. You can put markers on your recording while it's recording. This is you have to do this from the app. Interestingly, there is no way of doing this from the machine itself. Uh, and what I haven't tested is whether or not those marks are readable in something like Reaper or or which digital audio workstations they are readable in. I haven't seen any literature about which which is compatible. But it, as I say, interesting, you can only add those marks from the app. So I'm going to go back to the menu here. Menu, button. And I want to go through that before I go through the channel uh, settings on this screen. Finder, button. So I've double tapped on the menu and we've come to Finder, which is the top option. Menu return, button. And there's a, uh, the very top option is a menu return, which is a back button. Then menu heading finder button finder. And that's where you would explore all the tracks. I'm not going to go through that at the moment because that's quite dull. Uh, but effectively, it's going through, you know, fold project folders and file names. Um, and I haven't explored the extent to which you can delete and erase. I don't know at this stage whether that's possible. That's something I'll have to look into. Next next item though. Recording button. That's the recording menu and date slash time button. Date slash time. Versions button. Versions. Versions button. And that's the last thing on that screen. So let's have a date look. Date slash time. Recording button. Have a look at the recording menu. Recording. Recording button. Menu return button. Recording heading. Rec file name date button. So rec file name is set to date at the moment. Uh, let's have a look in there. Rec file. Rec file name heading. Selected date. User defined name button. User defined name that allows you to, uh, you know, you could give it a project name, for example, and then it would se uh, serially name the, the the takes within that project, you know, zero zero one, etc. User defined name button selected date. User defined user defined name. And that's the button. last one in that menu. So I'm going to go to the top of the screen. Menu return button. And go back. Menu return. Red file name date button. Sample rate forty eight kilohertz. Button. Sample rate forty eight kilohertz. Let's have a look in here. Sample rate. Menu return. Sample rate heading. 44.1 kilohertz selected 48 kilohertz 88.2 kilohertz 96 kilohertz 192 kilohertz 192 kilohertz that's all your options in there so from 44.1 to 192 going to go back menu return button menu return 2012 status bar item sound marker off button free rack on button menu return Re sample rate 48 kilohertz sound marker off button free rack on button file format mono button sample rate 48 kilohertz button. there we are sorry so got a bit, bit confused there. so for set Sample rate 48 kilohertz. Next option is file format mono button. File format. We're going to go in here. File format. Menu return button. File format heading selected mono stereo stereo. So only two options mono or stereo. So if you set it to stereo, it's going to record the channels uh, the one and two uh, inputs into a stereo file left and right. Um, if you set it to mono, then it might still record two channels, but as separate files or if if only one of them is armed it will record that one channel as a as a separate mono file so it's stereo dual mono i suppose 
uh, and single channel mono. Menu return button. Menu return sound marker off button prereq on sound marker pre file format mono button prereq on button. Prereq is very good. This has a prereq function, and for those who don't know, that means if you're if you've got your machine switched on and your mic is armed, your channel is you know is, is listening. Your mic is listening in that sense. If you miss the beginning of something and you press the record button, there's a buffer storing um, an amount of information depending on your um, uh, the, the sort of kilohertz setting you've got um, so that you don't miss uh, the first few seconds of something if you're just a bit slow on the on the buttons. Uh, and at 48 kilohertz, which I've got at the moment, that's a six-second pre-record buffer. So I can be six seconds late in pressing record and still have that thing that started six seconds previously. Absolutely marvellous. So imagine you're at a, an event uh, and you're going to do something with the material afterwards and you want to catch that moment where the person says, so welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and you press the button as he's saying, gentlemen, you will have that material because it's in the buffer. Uh, that the the amount of buffer diminishes. Let's well, let's have a look inside, shall we? Freeback. Menu return button. Freeback heading off. Selected on. So it's on. Selected on. Selected on. Oh, it doesn't say in here. So basically, it does diminish. I think at, at ninety six, it may be down to three seconds, and at one nine two, it might be down to one second. But at forty eight, it's six seconds, and forty four point one, it's six seconds. Menu return button. Menu return. Freeback on button. And the next item in this uh, recording menu is... Sound marker, off, button. Sound marker. This is um, an interesting uh, function. It's got nothing to do with the headphone alert tones I mentioned before. This would actually put a marker on the recording, um, quite a noisy bleep type thing, and you can, you can actually configure what it is. Uh, and I assume that's so you can, you know, find it... Certainly, if you were visually looking at a wave file, you could spin through something very quickly and find a mark. It must be a, a it's I think equivalent to a different form of, of actual marker that we saw on the main screen. Anyway, I don't have that switched on. Sound marker off. But sound marker. And off, that's the button. last item in the recording menu. So I'm going to go back up. Menu return button. Menu return. Recording date slash time button. I'm not going to look at the date time at the moment. Those pickers are are tricky. Uh, Versions button. And versions is where you find the firmware version. So let's go back to the main screen. Menu return button. Menu return. Zero hours, zero minutes, and zero seconds. And I want to talk about the, the input settings. So what you've got to remember here is that what we did there in the menu, the recording settings there, were the sort of overall recording settings for the machine. What is our um, you know, kilohertz, mono, stereo, um, all that sort of thing. What we're going to look at now is the specific settings for individual channels, the two channels, um, and the and whether they're set to microphone or line or phantom power. So let's, let's swipe through again this information at the top. Ninety-one hours. Nine name. One four zero eight two format. Forty-eight kilohertz slash thirty-two one button. Now, when we say when it says one button, this is both useful and unuseful. Um, this is the button that arms that input and i'm going to demonstrate this um one second yes so i'm going to mute the main microphone on on my uh on this recording so i'm going to mute the the big mic here you can still hear me 
because I'm now talking into a micro the microphone that's plugged into the Zoom F3, which is the short KSM8, and that's going through the vocaster into a separate track on on Reaper. Um, and I'm focused on this one button. one button. Now, if I start counting, I'm going to count continuously, and I'm going to do a, a single one finger single tap on that button as I do it. So, one, two, three. Seven, One. eight, nine, ten. One. Fourteen, One. fifteen. So you'll have heard my counting come in and out. And I'm double tapping on that number one button. And that is muting and mute or unmuting or arming and unarming that input. And I'm plugged into number one with this sure KSM eight. Um now the bad thing about it is that the status isn't doesn't tell you what the status is on the app. So if I swipe back and then board, one button. It just says one button. It doesn't say switched on, switched off, um, which it really should be able to do. Um, I don't know what the visual representation on the screen is. I imagine green and red or something like that. Um, but it, it doesn't tell you. But you hear it in your cans. What you were hearing when I was counting and my voice was coming in and out, was the output from the headphone jack of the F3. So you would be able to know in the app whether your mic was armed or not because you'd hear it or not hear it by double tapping on that on that button. Okay, so I'm just going to switch back to my main microphone and I'm just going to mute the uh, F3's microphone for the moment. Uh, two microphones recording at the same time isn't always a great idea. Um, okay, so... That's the arming button, and th th these controls are mirrored for channels one and two. So I'm going to swipe right. Zoom in. Button. Zoom in. In fact, I'm going to come back to that. X512. Gear. Button. Possibly. Settings. We're going to go to the gear button first. Um, now, gear buttons, a bit like hamburger buttons, they mean settings or menus, don't they, uh, when they're not labeled properly. So this is the settings for channel one. So we're going to go in here. Button. Menu return button. There's a back button at the top, effectively. Swiping right. TR1 settings. Heading. TR1 settings. Track 1 settings. Button. Source. So, button. unlabeled button, but the label for it is underneath. Source. That, that's the pattern with these Zoom recorders, actually. It's the, the, the thing that, that you want to go into, which is generally unlabeled, is then followed by the, the descriptor of it. So, if we go back up to the thing that says button. Button. And go in there. Selected. Mic. You can see that it's mic is selected. Mic plus 48V. Or mic plus 48V. Line. Or line. Line plus 48V. Or line plus 48 volts. Line plus 48V. So this is what... This is the, the different ways I can configure this first input. I can have it as a purely mic setting. And that's what I've got it on at the moment because what's plugged into it is a dynamic microphone that doesn't require phantom power i could change that to a, a, a powered microphone and give it 48 volts phantom power or i could change it to a line input if i'm taking the feed off a, a mixing desk or playing something out of my iphone that i want to record on on the f3 straight into it um line plus 48b and um some bizarrely believe it or not some line out um devices 
um, that you might um, play to do require voltage. I've never come across that, but line plus forty eight B. There it is. Menu so return. I'm going to go back a level. Menu return. Button. So that button. Phantom voltage. Button. Mic. Source. So button. You get the button. That's where where you go in to change those settings. The descriptor. Source. Source. And then what is that? What is it actually set to? Mic. Mic. So that tells you, you know, without going into the settings, what it's currently set to. So now if I swipe right, it's going to say button again. Button. And then what's the descriptor? Phantom voltage. Phantom voltage. Plus 48V. Currently 48 volt is selected. Misleading because we're not using phantom power at the moment. But, you know, it, if we switched on phantom power, what voltage would it be using? Well, 48 and the choices are 24 or 48. So we won't need to go into that. Button. Another button. Here's the descriptor for that. HPF. HPF, high pass filter. 80 hertz. Currently set to 80 hertz. Now, in there, there's a whole range of settings. What's a high pass filter? Well, it allows you to cut the lower end of the signal out when you're recording. Um, that can be very useful if there's a lot of rumble. If there's wind outside, you can make uh, really improved recordings by putting an 80 or 100 hertz um, filter high pass filter on that um, if you're interviewing someone on a on a train or on a plane or in a car you you can actually transform the recording um, by using a high pass filter from something that just sounds bassy and rumbly and boomy to something that sounds completely normal so uh, i tend to put a hate an 80 hertz filter on whatever i'm doing it doesn't doesn't you don't lose a lot of you know human voice in that below that anyway so uh, that's where you can change that. Button. Another button, another descriptor. Invert phase. Invert phase. This is complicated when you've got two microphones and they interfere with one another. It's not something I understand particularly, but that is where you can invert the phase. Off. It's off at the moment. Button. Another button, descriptor. Input delay. Input delay. 0, 0.0 milliseconds. And that's currently set to 0, 0.0. Input delay is something you might use at some point. If you imagine, for example... Um, that you have a wired microphone plugged into channel one of your F3 and you have a wireless receiver plugged into channel two and a wireless mic pinned on a guest you're interviewing. Say you're walk, doing a walk and talk with a, with a guest and you're holding the, the recorder in your own microphone and you've got one of these uh, really these new cheap wireless um, microphone systems and you've clip that onto your guest so that they're hands-free and you don't have to wave the mic around all the time. Um, you've got the receiver plugged into channel two. The, the, the signal from the wireless uh, mic and your mic arrive in the recorder at different times. The wireless mic is slower by milli several milliseconds usually. Um, is that a problem where you think, well, you know, human ear can't hear that? Actually, it would be a problem. So, for example, if a door slammed, it would sound very strange if there was even a few milliseconds difference between the recording that's coming into your mic and the recording that's coming into their mic getting to the recorder. Your recording is going to get there much quicker. Your signal is going to get there quicker. The wireless signal is going to take longer. And wireless manufacturers publish the, the, the latency uh, the, you know, how much latency there is in their system. So you can set it to a certain number of milliseconds and then a combination of wired and wireless mics will sound uh, 
like they're happening at the same time, normal. So it can be very useful, particularly, as I say, in this era where a lot of people are getting these quite cheap wireless systems that are actually pretty good, some of them, um, and using them to, to do interviews and vlogs and, and what have you. So let's see. Zoom in. Button. One. Button. X512. Zoom out. Button. Zoom out. Button. Possibly. Search. And then we're into the Zoom. Um, X512. One. Zoom in. 0.0 milliseconds. Um, functions, which are also on the front page. So I'm going to talk about those uh, now. Menu return. Button. Menu return. Um, and zero hours, zero minutes, and zero seconds. As I said to you, if I swipe through here, FF, rec off, stop off, rec off, FF, line, zoom, gear, X, zoom, two, zoom out, button, so two, button. There's a two, and then it's exactly the same for channel two. There's a zoom in, X64, gear, button, zoom out, button, a gear button, so you can go in and change the settings. Now, what are these zoom buttons? Okay. This is complicated, I think. Uh, I certainly find it complicated. I don't fully understand it. When you're recording on the F3, there are no level meters at all. We've said there's no uh, recording level control. There is none on the machine. Uh, there are no level meters on the machine to sell, to sell you if you're clipping or not. What it does do is it does show you a waveform on the display. Um, uh for either for one channel or two channels or if it's a stereo i think they're one above the other and that waveform um can be very crunched very sort of where the ups and downs of uh you know are very difficult to see or they can be very pronounced and that's about the amplitude of the signal now you might think what is that that's a visual thing it's not actually just a visual thing. Now, I said that there was no gain control on this machine, and there isn't. There is no gain control, no input gain. But you can change the amplitude of the signal that ends up being recorded. And the way I understand this is that it's a sort of, it's a sort of fader, effectively, at the very end of the process it, the signal's been through all the AD converters, been through all the electronics, et cetera, et cetera. It's a fully formed signal. It is what it is. Um, but the amplitude of it can be changed at the last moment. Um, and that you can hear that in your headphones. So I'm going to do a little demonstration here. I'm going to turn off the main mic. I've turned on back on the, the KSM, KSM8, which is plugged into channel one. X64, zoom in, button, two, now, button, zoom in, button. Now, I'm going to uh, use the zoom buttons on channel one, which is live. You're listening to me on channel one. Now, listen to this. Two, zoom in, button. So now I've muted my main mic, and I'm talking to you on the KSM8, which is plugged into the F3, and you're hearing the headphone output from, from that. And I'm looking at channel one. One, button, zoom in, button. And there's the zoom in button. X1024. And the the zoom ratio at the moment is a thousand and twenty four. Now here, but zoom out. Button. Now if I zoom out, listen to the the level. Zoom. Zoom out. I'm zooming zoom out. out. Zooming out. Zoom I'm out. Quieter. Zoom out. Zoom out. Zoom out. You probably can't hear me. Now. Here, exit. Zoom one button. Zoom in button. I'm zoom in. in. Zoom in. Zoom in. I'm starting to zoom in. Starting to zoom in. Starting to zoom in. Zoom in. I'm in at the, the maximum there. So you heard my level going up and down out of the headphone volume and that is what would be recorded now again i'm not an expert on this 
But I see this as a sort of last-ditch fader that's not going to make any difference whatsoever to you taking that file into the uh, DAW. It will sound louder or quieter, but it's, it's a fully formed file and it can be cut down or raised up to get it to the right level. Um, but the zoom thing is useful um, because it, it reassures you you're hearing something in your headphones. So if the zoom is really low, if it's at like X1, if I go... X1024, zoom in, button, X1024. At the moment, it's at 1024, which is the maximum. I think there are 11 steps or 10 steps. If I took it down to X1 and put my cans on and started recording, I really wouldn't hear anything in my cans. I'd still be recording, and absolutely still recording a perfectly fine file that I could use in post-production, but I, I wouldn't have the reassurance of knowing that I was hearing a, a live mic. And... And that's what the the what the way the, the reason I use the Zoom. Um, that's not a very satisfactory discussion or description, but it is something to do with the amplitude at the very end of the process. So I just wanted to do, add a little note to this about the the zoom ratio on the on the wavelength on the on the inputs. Zoom is a confusing term given the recorder's name, but it really is the, the size of the wavelength that you're recording, what it looks like on the screen, and the level at which it's recorded to the recorder. Um, you can change this on the unit itself, and I think I have worked out how to do that. Um, I'm not confident because this took me a long, long time. So I mentioned the four buttons at the bottom of the LCD screen. I've unplugged the Bluetooth adapter, by the way. What you're hearing, again, is the output of the headphone jack, and I'm speaking into this ksm8 sure microphone um and it's plugged into channel one now in this case what i've worked out is that the two leftmost buttons uh, of the four under the lcd uh, can be used to change that amplitude that we changed with the zoom buttons uh, on the channel on the app itself now, timing seems to be an issue here because these buttons are also used to set some of those input settings for each channel. Um, and that I haven't worked out a, an accessible way of doing. Again, I think timing can be an issue. I think things go off after a certain amount. But what I have worked out is that taking channel one, so I'm taking the leftmost two buttons uh, below the LCD, if I press the leftmost button, then pause ever so slightly and press it again, it will take the amplitude down. So I'm going to do that a couple of times and you'll hear my level go down. So I'm going to count and try and press one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So I'm pretty low now. And now, I, if you, I hope you can still hear me. I'm going to press that left button and then I'll give a little pause and press the one to its right. One, two, three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen sixteen seventeen now this is a bit hit and miss because it's not happening each time and i don't know if it's because i have to let something uh, happen then went up then 
and it seems to be an amount of time I have to leave it before it'll do it. Incredibly inaccessible and not helpful. Um, but it is possible. And for a long time, I had, when I was fiddling with the recorder, I couldn't hear any mics. And this was when I discovered this thing about the zoom ratio. Um, anyway, I'm going to cut this mic now and go back to my proper mic. Um, okay, so I'm back on the, the RE27 now. So that's a very frustrating thing about the zoom. I mean, what is worth saying is that if you get your, you know, your channel armed and, the amplitude at a level where you can hear it in your cans it does remember all that when you switch the machine on and off so there is there you know if you don't change much or need to change much um, you can get it set up and have you know plug your microphone into channel one each time and go out and press record slide up into record and do your thing each and every time without worrying about things i think if you want to do any fiddling around with the channel um you could possibly learn the button presses that allow that to happen from the main screen. Uh, but I think you would really need to to use the app to do that efficiently and, and to know what you were doing. Uh, that's it really for this review. I have a couple of final thoughts. My question is, who is this for, this recorder? I think this recorder is for someone who is out and about doing mobile recordings. And I think of people at conferences, um, or in electronic news gathering, where you're doing a lot of interviews, uh, you've got to get from A to B very quickly, um, you've got a lot of noise around perhaps, uh, you've got a, a lot of time pressures, and this allows you to not worry about your levels and to have a very portable machine that um, you can record for hours on and have some reassurance that you're recording and you're not recording uh, and you're getting your material. So I think this ticks a lot of boxes uh, for people who are doing that. Is this a an effective audio interface? Well, it will work, but it's not really what it's for. Um, is it a, a machine a sort of multitask for podcasters? Well, I don't think that either, really. I think this is a, a machine for gathering mono and stereo audio in the field. I think that's what it's designed for, and I think that's what it's good at. And I think for us as blind people, it has some significant advantages, not least that it's cheaper than some of the competitors like the F6 and the sound devices uh, machines. It's, robu it's robust, it's rugged. The little rails on the underside would allow you to put it on your belt. Apparently, they're going to bring out some accessories that could maybe allow you to strap it to your arm. And of course, once you've got it, out of your hand that hand can be used for a microphone and then you've got a hand free for a cane or the harness of a guide dog so there are all sorts of advantages here the batteries are a bit disappointing i wouldn't recommend using alkaline batteries in this you're not going to get more than a couple of hours at best i would use rechargeables or indeed the new newer lithium batteries you're going to get much better battery time out of those if you're in a scenario where you're sitting down it's it's a bit more relaxed then i would use uh, uh, a usb power bank to power it uh, but all in all i think it's a, a fantastic addition to the range it has some accessibility challenges no question it's a pain having to pay extra for that accessibility in terms of the the bluetooth dongle um, but it's it's a, a very nice recorder and as i say it has that huge advantage of 32-bit float recording which does allow us not to worry as much. Now, I will say this, which I always say with 32-bit float recording, 
doesn't make up for poor microphone technique. If you if you have an omnidirectional microphone, you're interviewing someone and the microphone's six feet from their mouth, it's still going to sound like that, the 32-bit float uh, recording as well. It's still going to sound like a poor recording, you know, not mic'd properly. So all the microphone techniques still apply. It's just a question of levels and, and giving you that leeway with soft recordings or loud recordings or sudden changes uh, in recordings where this machine will help you out. I'd be very interested to hear any feedback. This is a very much an initial look at this device. I don't understand all elements of it, and I may well have got some bits of it wrong. So please do let me know if you discover things that I've got wrong about this device or any other workarounds that would, would help other blind users. But for the moment, that's me signing off, Gary O'Donoghue. Hope uh, that's been of some use, and we'll speak to you again soon. Yes, good afternoon. My name is Jay Naiman. I'm calling from Tamarack, Florida, in the U.S. That's in Broward County, near Fort Lauderdale. I'm calling because I need some information. You talked about a charger. If you can repeat the name on your next show, I would appreciate it because I'm thinking of buying one when I travel. It might be pretty handy and helpful. Thank you very much. Love your show and have a nice day. Nice to hear your voice, Jay, and you have a nice day as well. We were talking about two devices on the show that you mentioned. One is a GAN charger that plugs into the wall and it has a couple of USB-C ports and I think a couple of USB-A ports. It's a sort of a bulky thing, but given all the ports that it has, it's pretty cool. Now, that one is called an A-Logic. That's A and the word logic all joined together. And the model number of this one is WCG4X100. I'm not sure what WCG stands for, but I think the 4X100 means that it's got four ports and it's 100 watts. Now, all of this said, I'm not sure if you would have that particular model in the United States because this particular model plugs into a New Zealand-type wall outlet and it's taking 220 to 240 volts. But there are lots of these sorts of charges you can get now that plug into the wall that use this new GAN technology and give you a lot of ports. The other thing that we did mention in that episode was a Signet 2700 milliamp battery that had a Qi charger on the top of it, USB-A and USB-C, and that for me has been a bomb. It has caused me no end of bother. The first one we got shipped to us from PB Tech, which is kind of like the best buy of New Zealand, was losing voluminous amounts of charge without it doing anything. You could charge it all the way up, and it takes a while to charge because it's a big kahuna of a battery, and then you'd leave it unplugged overnight, fully charged, and it would have lost about 20% of the charge just sitting there overnight. So I took it back and they said, yes, that will never do. We'll check this out. And they said, yes, indeed, this does seem to be faulty. We will give you another one. So they gave us another one. This one also seemed to lose a lot of charge overnight with the added complication that probably nine times out of 10, when you plug the device into it, it didn't charge at all. It didn't seem to recognize that a device was connected to it. So I realize that sometimes you get out-of-box failures, but when you get two in a row that have failed, that was it for me. So I have sent this battery back. I have got my refund. 
or at least I've asked for one. I don't think it's come through on my credit card yet. And I will tell you about any device that we replace it with. Here's a quick email which simply says, Hi Jonathan, it's Josiah from Janesville, Wisconsin. I have found that the Braille with a lowercase b locking up bug is fixed in iOS 15.6. Apple even cares enough to put it in the description of the update. Yes, it's listed there as a fix, Josiah. That is great news. And I've just got everything crossed that we can get through the release of iOS 16 without any kind of major accessibility dramas where voiceover is concerned, but particularly Braille, because we've had a bit of a bad run with Braille of late on iPhone. Following Gary O'Donoghue's exceptionally good review of the Zoom F3, it might not come as any surprise to anybody that I have one. We're recording on it now. We're sitting in the living room at Mosin Towers with a new Audio-Technica mic. So this is actually just a single microphone. If I pan around with it, you'll hear me moving around the spectrum. It is designed for stereo recording, and I've got this mic. It's got two XLRs and then a cable that terminates in a single thing into the mic. And we're going to take this to get good quality stereo recordings with this tiny wee F3. It's going to be amazing to record with when we go on our European trip. And uh, we'll be there. We'll be there next month. So sitting next to me in the two-seater thing at Mosin Towers is Bonnie. Because we can't have a Bonnie bulletin without Bonnie. I mean, what would be the point? <laughs> what would be the How's it going? Good. What do you think of the Zoom F3? Uh- it's nice. I don't really have an opinion of it. I see. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice. I'm yeah. sure it'll record lots of cool things when we're in Europe. Yeah, man, it's, uh, the, this microphone's like pretty nice. Audio travelogue. Yeah, audio travelogue, exactly. And uh, we uh, we we got to do some cool interviews as well. We've got one with the director of the Louis Braille Museum lined up and that kind of stuff. So I thought I'd just give this mic a little bit of a test. And uh, so we're just sitting here and I'm holding it out between us. Cool. Marvellous. You've been doing your bit of planning for the... Yeah, today we're just trying to figure out what things... Nicola wants to visit the London Eye, which is the... Um, what do they call it? It's a 380-degree rotation thing. It's a like a Ferris wheel. But Does it turn you upside down? No. Oh. No, they're pods that you go in. And they apparently have different kinds of pods. You can get a private pod, you can get a Cupid pod, or you can just... Go in a pod with everyone else, which is what have we got? Go. We've got the we're going in the pod with everyone else pod. Oh, well, <laughs> the private pod would have been cool because we could. Well, we we might record it in anyway. Yeah, I'm not sure what the private. I mean, considering how expensive it is for the three of us, I'm not sure how much a private pod would be. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've been talking to the MX Concierge, and they use a site called Viator.com, which is actually visitor without the S. And they were looking at the different options. And I'd seen on the London Eye site that you can do a London Eye trip because it's just a, it's a 30-minute rotation where you can see the whole cityscape of London. And then you can take a river cruise on the Thames on a pontoon boat. So it's about a 40-minute kind of circular cruise where the tour guides, you see Big Ben, you go past the Houses of Parliament... Um, you go under, I think, Westminster Bridge. I think you see the Tower of London. So they give you, you, you just see a lot from the river. And I thought it'd be cool to have that ambience of being on the river, you know, mm. during the day. So and, this is the River Thames, is it? Yeah, the River Thames, The yes. River Thames, the River yeah. Thames. <laughs> and so, yeah, I thought that would be kind of fun. And 
we also got the on and off, the hop on and off bus, which is a bus that just continually, they loop the city and you give, have a ticket and you just jump on and off. And they the go, hop on and off bus really does sound like something out of Harry Potter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, the guy I was talking to used to live in London and I was talking to him about it. And he goes, I said, did you ever take, he goes, well, no, I live there. I took the tube because it goes yeah. everywhere. But yeah. he said the advantage of taking the hop on and off buses it's above ground, so you see stuff. And in the tube, you just see all kinds of... Well, you see stuff, but not the sort of thing you necessarily always want to see. But It's uh, definitely a good touristy thing to be doing. Yeah. I mean, if you want efficiency, you take the tube. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, But you can get off, and then you can go... Because it stops at different things around the city, so you can get off and do your thing and get back on. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. So we're doing that on Tuesday. I haven't done the tower yet tour tower uh tickets a lot of them you can just buy day or two before with the london eye we got a fast track ticket so you just go to the fast track line and you know it's not as long as the regular queue the tower there were a few options i wasn't one i was one is like a smaller group there's only 10 to 15 people and that's 99 a person and you get an hour and then the other one is like 60-something a person. It's two hours with a bigger group. And then you can just kind of wander around the tower by yourself. And he said there's bee feeders, you know, that you can go talk to and um, sort of self-guided. Then there was a private tour, which I didn't, when I saw the price of that, I didn't even ask what it included. It must have been included a beheading or something because it was like $500 Free caviar. a person. Yeah. So I'm like, um, I don't think we'll be taking that tour. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And how are your noise-canceling headphones going? Because this is causing some interesting discussion. Um, good. I like yeah. them. I know some people are kind of team Bose and some are team Sony, and that's fine. And that's what the, the guy in the store said when I said, which one is really better? And he goes, well, a lot of people, it, it just depends. Some people are Sony people and some are Bose. And um, the the pers- hi-fi reviews I read, the objective hi-fi reviews say that the Sony's better, mm-hmm. but I mean, it's marginal. And I mean, I put your Bose headphones on and they're very, very nice. And of course, some people do prefer the physical controls as yeah, well. Yeah, and I do. Yeah. Yeah. And I just like the Bose products. I mean, I've always liked the Bose. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Sony, but I've always Brand liked Brand loyalty. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I yeah. actually have ordered <coughs> the Sony XM5s. And they're not here at the time that I'm putting this episode together, but they're not far away. So I will look forward to hearing them and making my judgment. Yeah. And you're also already packing, really. I mean. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of at a standstill because I have to get a suitcase. Our suitcase was damaged in a flood. <laughs> so um, I really need someone to go to the mall with me to get a suitcase. And once I do that, I'm going to start putting stuff in it. Well, we may not have a suitcase, but we've got the Zoom F3, and we've got AirTags, and we've got lots of gadgets and noise-canceling headphones and battery charges. Yeah, so we just need some physical something to... uh, I mean, get a load of this, mate. I'm going to hand you the F3. See, isn't it cute? Cool. It's very, very cute. It is. Oh, I've seen it, yeah. It looks like a little... Oh, you haven't seen it yet? No, I have seen it before. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's cute. Yeah. There's little legs on it and little handles. You always, whenever I give you something like that, you always feel the need to compare it with something. Well, that's the way I think. Yeah. So what is this one like? It um, kind of looks like a... Let me see it again. Oh, no. Hang on. Hang on. I have to get it off my knee. There we go. Handing it over. Uh-huh. I don't know that it... It looks like a... 
Like a piece of doll's furniture or something. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's dinky, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of dinky it's and tiny. Like tiny, yeah. So I'm going to take Gary's advice and I'm going to clip it to my belt when we're traveling. You don't lose it. No, well, look, clipping it to your belt means you won't lose it, you That's see. That's good. Yeah, because you thread it through your belt, you know. Oh, okay. You actually thread it through. It's got that. You can use those rails at the bottom there. Mm-hmm. To thread it through the belt. It's like me threading my dog through the seat belt the other day on Air New Zealand. Yeah. And then you've got the uh, Audio Technica mic that we're talking on now. This will be a good mic. I'm, I'm just fumbling it. I mean, you've got to be careful not to not to fumble it too much, but it's not not too bad. It should be a really nice quality. Uh, this whole thing is going to give us amazing recordings. Yeah, you can record on the Tims. Yep. Or in the pod. 32-bit float. Yeah. If I could actually get it into Abba Voyage, we'd get a good recording in 32-bit yeah, flight. Yeah, I better not do that. No. <laughs> I love to hear from you, so if you have any comments you want to contribute to the show, drop me an email written down or with an audio attachment to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. If you'd rather call in, use the listener line number in the United States, 864-606-6736. Who's in it?